Last year, we talked about uh, that Yaakov and Esav shared the same womb. And I looked at the psychodynamic aspect of having twins and that Rachel herself felt that her child, she didn't know it was twins from the narrator's perspective. Rachel thought that that her child was kind of schizophrenic. Every time she passed the place of Avodazara, he struggled to come out. And every time he passed the base of Medra, she tried to cover up. I, I want to, this year, to um, talk about the tears of Aesop. So let's dive into what I mean by that, by starting with the, the text. So I will share with you the primal text. The scene starts when they come for the birthright and the blessings following the birthright sale. And that Yaakov feels that um, Esau has sold him the birthright, but Rivka says that won't happen without some kind of ruse. And so she dresses him up and it says, Vayigash. And so Jacob, dressed as Esau, approaches the blind father, Isaac, by Yishaklo, and he kissed him, by Oreach et Reach Begodov. And he smelt the raiments of his garment, the smell of a hunter's garments. And we're told that there's nothing worse than the smell of goat poo and goat excrement on a hunter's vest. So he smells the smell of his Begodov, by Yvorachehu. And it seems from the verse that as a result of smelling the smell, because he was blind, he would recognize that that is Ace of the hunter. So he blesses him. And then he says, And who's he addressing? The Mephoshim asks, who's he? He's talking to God? Is he talking to himself? Is he, behold, the smell of my son, Hashem, the smell of the of the reach of the soda, the smell of the field, which God blessed him. Okay. And then he gives him the brocha. And now we come to the climax scene, the most poignant scene, where now he had finished blessing Jacob. There's this Shakespearean moment where Jacob is going off the stage and in comes Esau with his hunting food because the fatherhood wanted, bring me some venison, bring me some hunting food. He too brought these delicacies. He brings it to his father. And now he comes to his father, Yokom Ovi, arise and eat from my tzido, from my hunting, so that you can bless me. This, this is a very poignant, climactic moment in the whole parsha of Toldos. Who are you? I am your son. Your firstborn son, Esau, by Yecherad Yitzchak Harada Gedola Adma'od. This this moment of climax, and Isaac 
has this panic fear he's seized by this by this violent epileptic fit and who's the other guy who brought me who is the other guy i blessed him and now comes my verse that i'd like to dive in with you today Kishmoa Esav as Divrei Oviv, when Esav hears these words of the father that I will, I, I have blessed him. Wow. Look how many words are spent on his response. Vayitzak, he shrieked, Tsa'akagdola, a great shrieking, Umara and bitter. Adma owed exceedingly one, two, three, four, five, six, seven words are given to his response. Please bless me. I mean, what is your response in reading that verse? Is it, oh, that wicked Asaph? No, it is total sympathy. It's total sympathy. So what happened between the pshat in which we have this beautiful, sympathetic response as a reader? What a, he's been fooled. He's been oisker fooled. He's been completely bamboozled by his brother or by Rifka. And his response, you know, he's ace of the hunter. He's very couth, uncouth. He's very coarse. But I mean, he's really feeling this pain. And you could say, yeah, well, he sold his birthright. So what do you want from me? But the response that the narrator is evoking in us, the audience, the reader, is this compassion for the older son, primogenitori, gets the bracha. Okay, he was hungry 20 years ago and he gave, he sold it, blah, blah, blah. But now his father's on his deathbed and one has this, Extraordinary feeling of empathy comes along the medrash, of course, <laughs> comes along the medrash. And we, we're, we're given two midrashim. The first one is Breshit Rabbah. That's the oldest one. And what does Breshit Rabbah say? Breshit Rabbah tells us that there is a problem. The Breshit Rabbah is very sensitive to this poignant moment and the cries of, of Aesop, the Torah doesn't ignore his pain and his suffering, doesn't ignore it. And the Medrash is bothered by Vayitzak Tza'aka, why the double mention, Vayitzak Tza'aka. And we have another place in Torah where there is a double mention of Vayitzak Tza'aka. Jacob Za'akat Achad Hizik Yaakov Le'esov. Jacob stimulated, caused Esau to cry a single cry. He cried an exceedingly great and bitter cry. And the, the cry was a direct result of Jacob taking the blessing Isaac had intended for him. So there's another place in Torah, right in the end, in the book of Esther, where that same expression is mentioned. So the Medrash ties the two together and said, well, if he did that, where was the payback? 
Where was the payment for this offense exacted from Jacob? He, although he's fulfilling his mother's command, he was still held responsible, according to the Medrash, for the suffering his act caused his brother. Oh, Bashushan Habiro, we're in the book of Esther. Shenema Vayizag Umara, the same words in our Pasuk is brought in the book of Esther. Admaod. It's identical. Except one is Tsaka, one is Zaka, but we'll come back to that. And Mordechai learned all that had been done and cried a loud and bitter cry. So Mordechai is somehow paying back for the sin of Jacob in stealing the blessing. That's what the Medrash tells us. Very, very curt, does not go into why, but somehow we now have to unpack that the debt had to be paid. The debt had to be paid. The other Medrash comes from the end of Kiddushin. And here, interestingly, it says, this is also brought in Tanchuma. Look how important the mitzvah of Kibbut Av is. really goes to town showing how Aesop excelled in Kibbut Av Ve'eim. We say that on Shabbos afternoon by Zmiras. Look who's coming from Edom. Chamutz Begodim. He's wearing his Shabbos finery. Why? Because the Medrash says that Esau had a, a Shabbos coat that he would put on specially when he came to see his father. And even though it was considered by Medrash to be trickery and fooling him, and he would ask him Shilas uh, and, and Kashas in the Gemara to make out that he was learning. Nevertheless, the Natsiv says he was great in Kibbut Ava'im based on this Medrash. Doesn't matter who you are, Tzadik or Rosha, the Abishnah doesn't distinguish. He doesn't, he, he doesn't favoritize. Whether you're a Tzadik or Rosha, if you're involved in Kibbut of Ba'im, oh my gosh, Minolon, May Esov Horosha. Al Shekibid Esoviv. Nosan Loa Kodesh Borchu is Kola Kovadazeh. He gives him all this covered because. He was Mechabed, his father. And now here's our punchline. When he heard of what Jacob had done to him, he let loose three tears. One from his right eye. And when that dried up, the first Beis Amikdosh was destroyed. Eitz Yosef tells us. Echod shel small. The second base Amikdorosh destroyed when the tear of his left eye was dried up. And the third tear, which apparently was between the eyes, has yet to dry up. And therefore, we have not received the first base Amikdorosh because it hasn't yet dried up. We haven't yet paid the debt of Jacob. We're the children of Jacob. We haven't paid that debt yet. We are still in exile, waiting for that third drop from the third eye to dry up. And when did this happen? 
a Mosai, because when when he heard that Jacob had tricked him, he lifted up his voice and he cried, and he cried. So that's the second source about his crying, that the tears of Esau, three tears, first temple, second temple, and the third temple. The Tanchuma has a different, slightly different, and the third tear he kept back, and that tear has salted the bread of our exile with tears and made us taste tears in threefold measure. It even strengthens the power of that third tear. So three Agadic sources tell us that a great punishment descends upon all of us, all because our matriarch Rivka and her son brought tears to the eyes of Aesop, who was an entirely evil man an entirely evil man. But I have told you before that that entirely evil man didn't become entirely evil until later in the Midrashic tradition. Because if we look at early Midrashim, at who is considered a Russia, who is considered an evil man, here's the list. Pharaoh is called Roshel, Balaam is called Roshel, Nebuchadnezzar, Homon, Titus, Tinius, Rufus. <laughs> but it doesn't say Aesop until much later, until after the Constantinus's conversion from a, being a Roman to a Christian, and then persecution started after 333 in Israel, in Palestine, and then we start seeing the persecution of Edom, and the connection, Gerson Cohen has done all the research in this Hebrew Union College, tracing how Aesop becomes Aesop of Russia much later in Midrashic literature. And here is one example of that Aesop of Russia. And here it says, Omar Rabbi Yehuda Bar Elohi Yodorush Hakol Kol Yaakov Mitzavachas Mimashi Osu Hayodaim Shidei Aesop. The Medrash notes the parallel between this verse and the one in Megillus Esther when Mordechai finds out about Haman's decree. So Jacob causes Esau to let out a single cry. And where was he punished? That is the Medrash's core point. Punishment, it needs to be paid. You caused him anguish. You have to suffer anguish. And that's in the capital city of Shushan. So we can ask many questions on this medrash, but, but just one, the critical one, why is Jacob held accountable specifically for Aesop's anguish? If Jacob acted wrongly by consenting to Rivka's scheme and disguising, it, disguising himself as Aesop, why was he or his descendants, us, punished? Isaac also shudders upon recognizing him as mistake. And we don't find Chazal criticizing Jacob for causing Isaac this kind of emotional trauma. Good question. Why, why isn't he punished for causing his father the Charoda Gedoyla Admoid? Why was he only held responsible for Aesop's pain? And the Nitziv has a stunning commentary. The Nitziv says that Yaakov and Rivka were justified. No problem, halachically. 
justified because the blessings rightfully belong to Jacob. He sold it. He paid for it. They belong to him. However, the Nitziv says, Jacob experienced a degree of gratification upon seeing his hostile brother's anguish. Oh, my giddy aunt. He got a geschmack seeing his brother screaming. That's what we're being punished for. Now the Nitziv is living in the 19th century and the Tsar is hucking them and he wants to take out all sorts of decrees upon the Jews of the pale in terms of their eventual Christianization and, and, and the change of the whole curriculum and the mother of all yeshivas that he has, his baby that he had created in Valozhin was now up for grabs and they eventually would close the doors of Valozhin because of these evil decrees. And so he's talking out of personal crying. He's crying when he's saying that. The Nitziv says, the blessings belong to us. That's not the point. The point is, he got a geschmack when he sees his brother's anguish. That's the geschmack that we're paying the price for. He certainly didn't enjoy watching his father shudder, but he did feel a sense of vindication upon seeing his Esau cry. Esau, the big brother, the bully, and he got geschmack the way when we watch movies and we always see it's the same, the same plot. The underdog gets to overcome the overdog at the end and we all get this geschmack out of it. For this, he was deserving of punishment. Now, let's just dive a little bit deeper than that. Aesop's tears and our tears. Let's look at the Zoya. And the Zoya in... Parsha Shmos, when Amisol is crying because of Golis and Mitzrayim, the Zoya says, the Omer Rabbi Yitzchok, if you can follow with me in the Aramaic, the suffering of Am Yisrael happens because of the tears. And we are paying for the cries of the tears of Esau before his father. This is the Mantuba manuscript. That's why it's in parenthesis. So Rabbi Yossi says, These are the tears that we shed in Galut. And it is only when these tears have been dried up that we will be ending the galut. We will be freed from the galut. And he brings the Pasuk in Jeremiah 31. They came to exile with tears and with tachanun. They will be freed. This enigmatic Zohar stretches the uh, the Medrash, and he carries on to say, and this is what is the crying baby Moses is being seen by Miriam in the bulrushes and representing the uh, the suffering of Am Yisrael. Now, Shmelka of Nicholsburg comments on this on this drush that the tears shed by Esau as a result of his intense pain over not receiving his father's blessings, 
blessings enabled his descendants to send Yaakov's offsprings into Galut. And that when those tears shed by the Jewish people wash away Esau's tears, then they will be redeemed from exile. So Reb Shmelko of Nicholsburg questions this statement and says, throughout the generation suffering and afflicted Jews have cried millions of tears. You're telling me that we haven't yet washed away Esau's tears? Why haven't they been sufficient to eliminate the few tears shed by Esau so many thousands years ago? So he brings an interesting Gemara in Chulim, and he says, Min bemino eno bato, meaning it is only possible to nullify an item by combining it with a more numerous item of a different type. But an object cannot be nullified by adding to it more of the same. So I have a bit of milk in the chicken soup. <laughs> if it's bottled bashishim, it's fine, but I can't make it bottled by adding more. So he says the tears cried by the Jewish people cannot cancel out Esau's tears. Why? Don't we cry for the same reason as Esau? How is it possible to say that the tears shed by Esau and those shed by the Jewish people are considered the same type of tears? Mino bamino. <laughs> so Rip Schmelke explains that Esau cries over the loss of the blessings that Yitzchak gave to Yaakov. And the blessings he gave to him were materialistic. I want the land. I want the blessings. I'm giving you all these blessings. From the fact that our copious tears throughout the generations have been unable to wipe these tears away, it must be that our tears are min bamino. Meaning, what do we cry for? Bone chayim zoyne. We want... Gashmias, we want physical pleasures of this world. We want to have an easy life. These are all materialistic and mundane and earthly issues. And therefore, they are the same issues and the same tears as Esau. And one cannot be bottled by the other. They can't wash them away because they have the same men. And so Rip Schmelke said, if we would only begin to cry, not over our unfulfilled physical needs, but our spiritual yearnings, then our tears would not be the same types of tears and that ace of shed, and we would be able to nullify them. It's a very dark interpretation. And I want to end up with an interesting Kotzkevort on this issue, uh, because we've also been told that we shed false tears. And when did we do that? When when Moshe is telling us that you didn't want to go into Eretz Yisrael and you came back and every man was crying in front of his tent. So Moses says in Deuteronomy, and the Amorites came out, those who live in those hills towards you, and they chased you as the bees do, and they crushed you in Seir till Choma, from Seir till Choma, and you returned and you wept before Hashem. But Hashem did not accept your prayer. You wept. And so Moshe is saying, Ben Israel, why are you crying? Why are you storming the mountains? You so much wanted not to go to Eretz Yisrael. You cried not to go into the land. You got what you davened for and still you cry. Asaph, explain your tears. You sold the birthright to him. So what are you crying for? 
So Aesop says, I'm about to die. What good is this birthright to me? It's from the land. He swore to him and sold his birthright. Yaakov then gave Aesop bread and pottage of lentils. And Aesop ate and drank and got up and scorned the birthright. So the Gemara explains the following. It says, okay, there are false tears and there are real tears. They're dinin in tears. They're share dimarot, the gates of tears, and they're never locked, we're told the Gemara in Brochus. And the, the Zoya tells us something very interesting. Surely all the gates have been locked and closed, yet the gates of tears have not been closed or locked. That means that even after all the gates are closed in terms of doing right and wrong and you're punished and they're ready to be sentenced, but the gates of tears have not been locked. And tears come only out of suffering and sadness. All those angels, I assume it means, appointed over those gates, smash the beams and locks, and those tears enter the prayer, and the prayer enters before the holy king. Then that place is distressed by the sadness and distress of that person, as he has said. And Isaiah, in all their distress, he was distressed. Happy is the share of the person who sheds tears before the Holy One. Now the Kotzka says, okay, so why do there have to be gates in the first place? <laughs> it's a real Kotzka tifa vult. What do I need gates for if I know my tears are going to go straight up? There are so many reasons to cry. Ask a baby, ask a kala, ask a mother of a Ben Bris, a mourner. Jews don't have a monopoly on tears. But neither tears nor passion are a litmus test for truth. And the Kotzka is all about truth. The mother of Sisera also cried for her son. Petta cries for the donkey blown up in a failed terrorist attack. Islamic jihad mothers also cried. So the Kotzka Rebbe says we need the gates to block out the false tears. <laughs> there are tears and there are tears. And, and the Chazal tell us regarding Tishabav, Atem Bechisem Shel Chinom, you were by 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 the Meraglim were crying false tears. You had no reason to cry then. Ani Ekvalachem So I am through Tishabav, I'm gonna give you a reason to cry. I'm now gonna give you a reason to cry through the the destruction of the Beis HaMetosh. You wept in vain. I will establish it for you as a time of weeping for all generations. So I wanted to end up with, with this idea that sometimes words fail us and I'm left still with a compassion for Aesop's tears. Sometimes words fail us when they do, depending on the cause and our own propensity, sometimes we resort to song heightened prose, dance, other forms of wordless expression. And sometimes we scream, primal screams that communicate an agony beyond verbal expression resound throughout the Torah. And Kalmanovsky, I love what she says here. The first scream belongs to Abel, whose blood cries out. Another belongs to Hagar. She watches her son wither to death. 
Am Yisrael, as we see, screams in pain in servitude in Egypt and later during their trials in the wilderness. To receive the blessing only to learn that just moments before, Jacob had stolen Esau's identity and his blessing. The scream communicates his frustration at a world that does not conform to communal norms or to his personal expectations. His father's blessing belonged to him as the eldest son. Firstborns had a unique status in ancient Israel, received double the inheritance. For Esau, Isaac's blessing, Jacob defied all his assumptions of the way the world should work and how life should unfold. And so my compassion remains at the end of our little chat for Esau, whose brother and mother betray him. In our last year of political turmoil, natural disasters, rising anti-Semitism and COVID-19, Esau's screams resonate with me even more. Like Aesop, I feel as if I live in a world that does no longer conform to my expectations. My basic assumptions of how I live and work, how my children should be educated, how my family and friends gather, how we live Jewishly and uh, we are challenged halachically, nothing feels certain. What seem to be fundamental truths about the way the world should work have been turned upside down. And I think that the Torah reflects this particular understanding. It tells us, certainly in Bracious, the story of individuals that defy norms and expectations to become us, a people that defy norms and expectations. And like our own, the Torah's topsy-turvy world is difficult to inhabit. But I think that the religious spiritual insight of this roadmap reflects the world I should prefer to live in personally and religiously. I don't want to live in a predetermined world. Nothing would change. A determined world which norms are fixed and expectations met doesn't allow for change, for development, for evolution, for growth and surprise. It does not allow for miracles that interrupt and defy the natural world. It doesn't allow room for the divine. So I bless you all to share with me the compassion of the tears of Aesop that we are still trying to dry out and bring this galut to an end. And have a wonderful week, and we'll see you soon.